0: Thank you very much, Vicky. Let's pray, shall we, as we look at this part of Exodus, continuing our little series through the book of Exodus together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this extraordinary story. And we pray your help by your spirit to understand that you will speak to us, teach us what it means to know your deliverance. Now and always. Amen. Susan White wrote a book in 1994 called Christian Worship and Technological Change. In the book, she asked, amongst other things, how Jewish Christians could go on celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper, during the Nazi Holocaust, when all around them, and they included, were suffering and dying. Now, it's not all that different today, we may ask, how can we go on sharing communion, worshipping as Christians, uh, and the communion that proclaims peace and hope in Christ and freedom in the background of what's going on in our world with Islamic terrorism, in the news again this week, uh, and with broken systems of government and so many signs of chaos and evil everywhere. Uh, What are we to think about the claim of Christ being good news when the world seems like this? Maybe, could I be more personal? Can we continue to claim that Jesus does mean good news when a member of our church family is diagnosed with cancer? Or a friend suddenly dies with no warning? Not to mention the daily challenges we all uh, feel, battling temptations which, when we came to Christ, we thought would leave them behind and all become easy, but some of them still seem to plague us. How do we overcome these things? And this morning, how does an ancient story like Exodus help us living with our present circumstances, mixed as they are, in the light of the freedom that we're told Christ has given us? Well, the story of this Passover night, the story that's just been read to us, the story of the departure of Israel from Egypt that follows it. We'll see that next week. This is the, the hinge on which the whole book of Exodus turns, the Passover night and the departure that follows. In fact, it's in some ways, it's the hinge on which much of the Old Testament turns as well. And this chapter, we've just had much of it read by Vicky. it focuses on just one day in the history of Israel. It's called the Day of Passover, and it's a day which we've just seen they are to remember, to commemorate for many, many years to come. And there are two key events in that one day we're going to look at this morning. Two key events. And the first one is the Tenth Plague. The 10th plague, which we're going to see, is an act of judgment. The 10th plague is an act of judgment. Exodus, to get the background story here, began with God's people, slaves in Egypt. If you've been here, you'll remember that from the beginning. God calls Moses to go and tell King Pharaoh to let his people go. But time and time again, we saw Pharaoh refuses this. And last week, we saw that God sent ten plagues, progressively worse, to force Pharaoh to release his people. And in this contest going on between King Pharaoh on one hand and God on the other, it becomes clearer and clearer only one side is going to win this, this little battle. Only God is going to win. And we get to this, the, the tenth, the last of the plagues... And it's the worst plague by some way. It was mentioned last week, actually, in chapter 11, verse 4. The plague on the firstborn of Egypt's sons and cattle. So Egypt's already seen plagues like flies and locusts and darkness, but now they're going to see death. And in our chapter, chapter 12, verse 12, the Lord gave instructions for his people on this coming night. He said, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. If you just glance across to verse 29 as well, that plague strikes at midnight on the day the Lord chooses, and three things we learn... ...about what it looks like, this firstborn plague. It is sudden. Uh, People are struck down, so it's unexpected. No warning, apparently. It is selective. Only the Egyptians are killed and their cattle... ...and only the firstborn of the Egyptians and their cattle. Not the siblings, not the parents. It's sudden, it's selective... And it's universal, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, so the prince on the throne is struck down that night, to the firstborn of the prisoner. It shows no social distinction, not just the powerful, not just the poor. But if you glance back at verse 12 again, there's another thing we learn about this plague that distinguishes it, again, from all of the other plagues. The plague is not just a striking down of the firstborn, but at the same time, an act of judgment. I will bring judgment, says the Lord, on all the gods of Egypt. So this terrifying destruction that's hitting Egypt this night is going to show them that God is God and Pharaoh is not. It certainly does that, doesn't it? He has the power over life and death. That Pharaoh's gods do not, but it's also showing that there is a spiritual battle going on behind this political one. That there's the God of Israel and there's the gods of Egypt, as he calls them. That the gods of evil and oppression are being not just shown up, but judged in this plague. You might say they are getting their just deserts. They're receiving justice for all of the evil and oppression that they have heaped on the Israelites, brutally enslaving them for all these years. You might, if you're here, remember back in chapter 5, verse 3, uh, when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, The Lord's told me to tell you to let my people go. Do you remember how Pharaoh replied? He said, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let them go? Who is the Lord? It's a a phrase of arrogance, isn't it? It's defiance. Who's the Lord? And that's always been the way through the centuries in our culture today. Who is the Lord? That's what any false god, any idol, any idolatry or any ideology will always say in defiance of God. Who's the Lord that I should obey him? I take, for instance, in our day, science, science, technology. They are good things. We benefit from them as human beings. But when we think that science can answer every question, when we think it can meet every human need that we experience and o- overcome every challenge we face, we have made science an idol. It has become like a God to us. And science has been used to brutalize as well as to bless. Oh, atheism, the idea that there is no God that made us, to whom we're accountable one day. Atheism is an idol with its claim that there's nothing more to life, to human meaning than what we see and touch. And it's very powerful in our culture, in our education system, and it's very powerful in other parts of the world where people are persecuted for simply claiming that Christ is Lord. The enemies of God, you see, they they say, don't they, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And the tenth plague teaches us that such pride will meet its judgment one day, there will be justice for all brutality and oppression and pride. God has power over life and death, and they do not. And you see, the New Testament teaches us that God still judges sin and wickedness and brings justice one day. Christ died, didn't he, to bear the guilt that we otherwise would have had to bear, our judgment, he bore in our place wonderfully, But he also died, says the New Testament, to defeat the powers of evil. And, of course, he rose on Easter morning to defeat the power of death. He has won the victory, and justice is coming one day for all that's wrong. The words from Revelation we started our services reminded us that he is risen, he is reigning, and one day all things will be put right. It's a day of judgment the passover also points to another day a day of judgment and justice to come standing with the mourners around the coffin at a funeral this week it struck me again how powerless human beings are in the face of death we do not have an answer to this do we we have no way around it no way out of it until we remember that Christ has judged sin and death on the cross and won the victory over the grave. Judgment is good news for his people, for God's people. So I wonder if your personal life does feel a bit out of control at the moment. You feel like there's chaos all around, or whether you just look at the world and you watch the news and we see the world in the hands of evil and powers that seem to deny God and And we think, how do I have faith in this experience, in these circumstances? And Passover, this Passover night says to us, if you follow the Lord, keep going. The day may not have come yet when those things end. You may still be in slavery. But live in the light of the victory Christ has won, and one day will demonstrate. Live with the certainty that justice is coming one day upon all that sets itself up against his grace and mercy. So it's a day of judgment, but it's also, secondly, it's an act of deliverance. The plague is an act of judgment, but the Passover is an act of deliverance. That's our second big theme this morning. If you look back at the beginning of the chapter, from verse 3, the Lord takes control, doesn't he? There's no doubt now who's running this show. Um, He dictates the precise dates and times for everything that his people are to do to be ready when deliverance comes. So he says, uh, take a lamb on on the 10th day of the first month, choose a lamb for the household, calculate the size of the lamb to match the number of people who will share it. So I don't know if Margaret's done that with the cake this morning uh, for the number of people here this morning, but that's the principle The right amount of lamb for the number of people, Um, keep it for four days, and then kill it at twilight on the 14th day and cook it by roasting. Consume it completely. Very specific set of instructions. He even dictates what else is on the menu with the lamb. Herbs to remind them of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt, which remember they're still experiencing the first time they share this meal, they're still slaves. Bread made without yeast to remind them of the hurry, the rush that they are in to get going when freedom finally comes. Even what to wear is prescribed on this dinner party invitation. So it says, dress, a cloak tucked in for travel, a stick for walking, sandals ready for rough roads. God is saying in every way, isn't he, When he says go, it is time to go. No hanging around. It's like when when the smoke alarm goes off on your house. You, I hope, will not stop to go through the family albums and pick out the most precious 50 photographs to take with you. When the alarm goes off, you go. They are to prepare this meal and to eat it before, remember, the plague has even come yet in faith that deliverance is coming. They are, as it were, to count on the victory God is going to win before they've even seen the first sign of it. And then, of course, there's the blood of the lamb. They kill the lamb, and then they're told to sprinkle the blood on the top and sides of the doorposts of their homes. And then verse 13 Explains why that is. Why this blood. This will be a sign for you in the houses where you are and when I see the blood, says the Lord, I will pass over you. That's where the word Passover came from. I will pass over you. So what's this blood? Well, the blood is a sign, he says, a sign for you. It's a sign that in this household the members have done as they were told. They took the lamb, they looked after it, they killed it and they put the blood on the doorpost. It's a sign saying this house has made the sacrifice as instructed. This house has done as the Lord said. This house has been purified. As it were washed through the blood of the lamb. So the blood purifies. It's a sign that this is a a pure household. But secondly also it protects. It's a sign to the Lord as he comes over Egypt that night, that the plague is not to touch this house. It keeps the destroyer away. He will pass over those homes when he sees the blood. It's almost like the lining on the door of a bomb shelter, keeping the blast away. God will be the destroyer of the Egyptians, but the deliverer of his people through the blood that he has prescribed for them. You see the Passover lamb, it's a sacrifice. It's an act of obedience offered to God to purify them. But it's also a substitute. The blood of the lamb is shed in place of the blood of the firstborn of Israel. And because the lamb is chosen to balance the number in the household it also is a substitute for the whole household. It represents them. It dies, as it were, instead of them. For years to come, Israel are told, you're going to celebrate this Passover each year to commemorate the time when I set you free. To remember how I delivered you from judgment On the Passover night. To remember that I have promised to deliver you. For years to come as well. This Passover sign. It's not just God did that once. And we remember it. It's God did that. We remember it in order to be ready for a greater deliverance in the future. It looks not just at the past. It looks at the present. And the circumstances of God's people. Who later on would not be slaves in Egypt. but Would struggle in the desert. ...would still struggle in the promised land... ...it looks to the future... ...saying an even greater deliverance is coming. That's what Passover says. And then you get to the New Testament, don't you? And Jesus... ...shares his last supper... ...with his disciples... ...and all the gospel writers tell us... ...it is a Passover meal... ...that he chooses to share with them. The night before he dies... At the meal, he says, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. And we think, don't we, of Exodus 12 and the blood of the Lamb. And remember those words each time we share communion as God's people, as we will this evening at our service. And then in John 19, if you're taking notes, it's verse 36. As Jesus dies on the cross... John tells us his bones were not broken. He died before it was necessary to break his legs that he might uh, finally expire. And John quotes verse 46 of Exodus 12 in our chapter, where the bones of the Passover lamb were not to be broken. John is saying, isn't he? Jesus is our Passover lamb, he's our deliverer, he's our substitute. And then Paul says, and this verse is actually on the top of our service sheets this morning, from 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Couldn't be clearer, could he? He is our lamb. His blood is shed to purify us and to protect us. And therefore, he says, let's keep the feast, the Passover feast, Not with the old yeast of wickedness and evil, but with the unleavened bread of purity and truth. It's now a spiritual feast for the followers of Jesus that we are to keep, I think he's saying, every day. Not just once a year. Leaving the old life behind in order to follow with urgency in the new life of Christ. Jesus is our Passover sacrifice. His death has won the victory over all our enemies over the things that cause us pain and suffering, over the things that imprison us and enslave us and are evil over us, over even the great enemy to come, death itself. His blood's purified us from sin. He has delivered us from judgment forever. So what does the Passover mean for us today? Well, first of all, Paul reminds us In that verse I've just read, that the death of Christ demands a wholehearted response to his grace. He says, you've been set free. That's the good news of the gospel. You've been set free, though, in order to live a new life for Christ. Just as Israel left yeast behind in the hurry of that Passover night, we are to respond to freedom coming in Christ by leaving mind everything that's not worthy of him and living in purity and truth. There's an urgency, you see, to this, isn't there? Just as the Passover demanded a go now from Israel, so the kingdom of God demands a go now to all those that would turn to Christ. There's a story told about Satan calling his junior devils together uh, and planning with them how to prevent people down on earth from responding to the good news of Jesus and becoming Christians. And he asked each of his junior devils what they would do. How would you do this? What would be your strategy? And the first one stepped forward and said, "Well, well, I'll go. And Satan says, well, how would you do it? And he said, well, I will tell them that there is no heaven. That'll stop them from becoming Christians. And Satan said, well, they're not going to believe you. For they know in every human heart that there's a bit of heaven. They know that good will triumph one day over evil and heaven will come. You can't do it. So a second one steps forward and says, I, I've got a plan, I'll go. And Satan says, well, what, what would you do? And he says, I will tell them there's no hell. And Satan says again, no, they're not going to believe you, for every human heart knows that we have a conscience, an inner sense of right and wrong, a voice that testifies and that tells us that one day good will triumph and evil will will be defeated. You can't go either. The last creature came forward, a particularly wicked and crafty one, and his proposal was this. He said, I've got it. I'll tell them there's no hurry. And Satan said, brilliant. That's it. You can go. And that's the message of Passover for us, isn't it? That responding... So the freedom that Christ has won for us when the moment comes is a matter of urgency. Leave the old life behind, says Paul. Leave behind the unleavened bread. Get out of darkness and slavery and enter freedom and do it now. And don't go back. You see, some of us have been in church a while and we've not been sure about committing to this whole Christian thing. Uh, we're drawn to Christ something in us wants maybe to to keep our freedom. We're not sure he's really going to be good news for us after all. Some of the Bible seems hard to understand, and we think, well, well, one day um, I'll get this all sorted out and decide. And pastor reminds us that the time for salvation is now. When the Lord says go, we go. When he says I've delivered you, come and enter my kingdom, we come. And if you are perhaps just on that brink of action this morning, please do at the end of this, just turn to the person next to you. Um, or there will be people at the front who would love to listen and pray with you, or come and find me or Margaret at the end, and would love to help you to know what it mean to, to come, to get up and go when you hear that call. Here's, I think, the second, my uh, closing way, that the Passover matters to us today. And here we go back to where we started at the beginning. Here are the Israelites told to repeat this Passover every year, not just in slavery, but even when they are free in the promised land, because of the challenges they still face. Here is God saying, keep doing this to commemorate the past, because it will make you strong and ready for the future, for the great deliverance to come, which, as we've seen, is in the coming of Christ, his death and resurrection, and his glorious return one day to take his people to be with him. And so we look at the past each day as followers of Christ, each time we share communion, we shelter under the blood of Christ to help us to look with faith at our present circumstances and to keep holding on to the deliverance that's yet to come. When sin will be no more, temptation will be gone, evil will have been destroyed, even death will have met its match. Remembering what Christ did as our Passover lamb, that will help the man who's lost his wife, because it's pointing us to the future. It will help the believer battling with those inner temptations and impure thoughts. It will help the aged saint to keep on praying day by day until the final victory comes. I wonder who you and I might get alongside, even this morning at the end of our service, to help each other, to encourage each other to keep going in the light of what Christ has done as our Passover lamb and the blood that he shed. If you glance ahead to verse 38 of chapter 12 we're going to finish on this you will see there verse 38 on that Passover night the crowd of refugees coming uh, out of Egypt for freedom is not just israelites literally it says there was a motley crew a motley crew with them maybe that means that with the israelites There were slaves from other nations also set free. There were perhaps Egyptians among them, too. You see, when God delivers his chosen people, he brings others with us to safety through the blood of the Lamb. Actually, probably for most of us here, myself included, we are the motley crew, aren't we? We're the ones lucky to be here, by God's grace. We're Holy Trinity's contribution to God's motley crew of his people. And who knows how many God will bring with us to safety and freedom in Christ. If we'll just pray for those five that we're praying for and talk to them about Jesus. Who knows who God will call to join us from every street of our parish, every neighborhood of our city, every workplace, every classroom, every lecture hall to join us, the motley crew, who've been delivered by Christ and are marching in faith towards his ultimate freedom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that... In the Passover, the first Passover night, you gave us this picture of the deliverance you've given us in Christ. We thank you that one day, a day of judgment is coming for all that's evil and wrong, and even an end for death itself, as you come in glory. And that this day is a day of deliverance through what Christ has done for us. And that day will be a great day of deliverance for all of creation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.